What a wonderful morning. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Easter Sunday is always a, a wonderful morning, no matter what it's like outside, right? I, I lived in northern Wisconsin for quite a while, and we, we had a, a tremendous Good Friday service, and basically it was a funeral, and it was dark in the sanctuary, and the mood was, was somber, and, and you would always leave really hungering for Easter morning. But what was interesting was so many times Good Friday was a bright, sunshiny day and Easter morning was raining or snowing or something like that. But it didn't matter because it's, it's what's in our hearts, right? We're going to read John chapter 20, the first 18 verses in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to give you kind of a sense of what the story is. Uh, the Christian message centers on the fact that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a fact. It's not a metaphor. It is not a symbol for some abstract spiritual experience. It's not a myth that was constructed by some religiously deranged or deception deployed by the powerful to manipulate the weak. It is a fact of history. As a matter of fact, it is the fact of history. The power of the world to come has broken into the world that now is. Death has been made to work in reverse. Life has overcome it in the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is a bodily reality. He was raised with the same body in which he suffered and bled and died. And today he lives sitting at the right hand of God as truly as you're sitting right there. He fills definite space and time in a definite place in a glorified human body. That's the Christian claim. And that's important to understand because as we read the passage before us, focusing on Mary Magdalene and her encounter with the risen Christ, we need to understand what's really going on. This passage is making a claim, and here's the claim, because Jesus is alive, the Christian gospel means is the means by which you can meet him for yourself as really and truly as Mary met him for herself at the garden tomb that Easter morning. And so we're going to direct our attention now to John 20, if you'll stand with me as we read God's word together, beginning in verse number 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to a tomb early, and while it was still dark, and saw a stone had been rolled away or taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, 
not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had laid him, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ from the grave and all the implications that surround it. But this morning, I, I ask that you will take our, our minds and our hearts and give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us minds to understand all that we can learn from the resurrection from this passage, Lord. And I pray that if there are those here who do not know you as their Savior, that you will open their ears and their eyes and their hearts, and that the word, the seed of the word of God will be implanted and sprout and grow into the fruit of salvation. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much. So our passage today begins on the first day of the week. It's very early on the Sunday morning, and the, the narrative says that it is dark. And of course, it's dark physically. Um, it's, there's no sunlight yet, but obviously, that darkness matches the mood of Mary and her friends and the twelve. John says that Mary Magdalene came to Jesus' tombs, or tomb, right? The other Gospels accounts speak of a whole company of women who were followers of Jesus who came along with her. And so what John does, John decides that he wants to focus on Mary Magdalene. So he doesn't mention the other woman, but he does give us, or other women, but he does give us a clue that they were there also. If you look at verse number two, look at what, he, what she said to the, to the twelve. When she found the stone rolled away, she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the reference to John. And she said this, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and who? We. She didn't say I. She said we. She was the spokesperson for the group that arrived early that morning. Simon Peter and John raced to this tomb to see what happens. 
I love this narrative. There's several things about it that I love. Number one, it's obviously an eyewitness account. It wasn't made up because John said that he beat Peter there. I love that detail forever. Everybody's going to know that John can run faster than Peter, right? John stops. Peter runs in. Uh, that's, that's Peter's character as well, right? But it also, in, uh, there's some indication that John might be from a priestly family, and so he would not defile himself by going into a tomb if he didn't have to. And so the, it's an eyewitness account. When they get in there, they see the grave clothes folded, the face cloth lying in place by itself, and we're told they saw and believed. What do they mean? That is, they believed the report that the women had given to them. Because John goes on to say, they did not yet understand the scripture that he, should, he must rise from the dead. So they leave, no doubt dismayed, crestfallen, heartbroken, all over again that the Lord's body is now missing. But Mary is left behind, and we're told in verse number 11 that she's outside the tomb weeping. Over and over in this passage, there's an emphasis on her distraught condition. And she's weeping, and she's grieving, and she's brokenhearted. She's, she's devastated, isn't she? Her tears give evidence of her profound love for the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? They do. And, and we understand why. Luke's gospel tells us that she was delivered by Jesus from seven demons. You remember that? By the way, there, there, some people believe that she was a prostitute, there's no, there's no real basis for that. That's, um, that's speculation from, um, I'm not going to go into it, but I don't believe that she was a prostitute at one time. Demonically possessed, yes. The number seven, she was either possessed by seven demons or the number seven is a number that indicates perfection and it could mean that Mary was uh, thoroughly, perfectly, and completely controlled by demonic influences in her life. But Jesus delivered her, delivered her. Either way, her life was a wreck, and Jesus rescued her. And that's the dominant fact we know about Mary Magdalene, and so we understand why she's so heartbroken at this point, don't we? And we can understand why her grief is so profound. Mary arrives at the tomb believing that the best she could hope for is to find the badly disfigured, decomposing body of her rescuer lifeless in the tomb. That's what she's hoping for. That's as good as it gets up that morning, isn't it? The man who cast the demons out of her life, changed her life dramatically, who she thought was going to lead a new, usher in a brand new kingdom, she was hoping to find his decomposing body there, and she gets there, and, that, that, and that's not a very high hope, is it? And it wasn't even there. She, only she discovers it's far worse than she can imagine. The tomb is empty, and so she realizes it's worse than I thought when I got up this morning. As I said before, John is careful to, to, to emphasize her weeping, and she is so distraught. At, the, at, at what is going on, that the sight of two angels doesn't even shock her. You look in the scripture 
everyone who had an encounter with an angel was, was mortified. It was, it was shocking to them, but she was, she was so distraught that she misses contemplating the, the significance of two angels visiting the tomb. And they ask, woman, why are you weeping? And she replies through her tears, rather matter-factly, right? Oh, they've taken the Lord away, and I don't know what they've done with him. Now, if you saw two angels, would that be your, would that be your response? <laughs> but did you notice in her reply, there's a little note of intimacy? She's, earlier, she had said, when she ran to uh, the disciples, she said, they have taken the Lord. When she spoke to the angels, she said, they have taken my Lord. There's a note of intimacy there. And these things bring us to a, a principle. She is distraught, and she's, she's just overwhelmed. And, and this is something that we need to remember. You can have intimate knowledge of Jesus. You, you can love him dearly and care about him deeply. But if you do not believe his promises, you will be filled with confusion and sorrow. He had told them, Jesus had told them repeatedly that he would be killed and rise again. And, and love for Christ or an affection for the Christian things unmixed with faith in Christ's person and promises leaves us blind. Let me say this one more time. Christian truth has to be mixed with faith or else we're just as blind as everyone else. Now, we're not completely blind as Christians, but there are areas of every one of our lives where we choose not to trust the promises of God and we take matters into our own hands and we are just as blind as a person who does not know Jesus Christ at that particular point in that manner. Only faith opens our eyes to see the risen Christ. And so much of the sorrow and confusion and sadness that we experience is due to the fact that we simply don't believe his promises. It's getting kind of quiet in here. But it's true of every one of us, isn't it? It is. But there's a second principle that we see here. And that is this. Much of the sorrow that we experience is due to the fact that we do not keep the resurrection in mind. Have you ever thought about that? We live as if this life is all there is. We hope for earthly treasures. And when we don't get them, we're crestfallen. We experience pain and sorrow, and then we act as if that's all there is to life, that God has nothing else in store for us. And we focus in on our pain and our sorrow and why, God, are you doing this to me? And we're asking the why questions instead of saying, thank the Lord that this is only temporary because I have a resurrection to look forward to. It's pitiful to see the believer who acts as if this life is all there is. And we all do it to a limited degree, don't we? There's areas of our lives. For some of us, and it's just fresh off the, um, we're fresh off the election season. Some of us act that way when it comes to politics. 
Hello? <laughs> Am I right? We act like our candidate did not win. Oh, man, everything's going to fall apart as if God didn't have a plan, as if there's no resurrection ahead of us. I'm going to be honest with you. I was not going to say this, but I'm going to anyway. Our country is past rescue. And I can prove it from Scripture, and maybe someday I will thoroughly take us through Scripture to show this to you. But you know what? We have a kingdom that will never change, will never be conquered, and will never be defeated. Amen? That's the resurrection, and we have to keep that in mind no matter how dark the days are ahead of us in this life. That's one of the things when, when uh, you make a hospital visit or you visit somebody who's elderly and, and they're shut in, remind them of the resurrection. Remind them that this present suffering is not all there is. Turn their eyes to heaven. Turn their eyes to Jesus Christ. And so the, these principles are, are so important. We see something else. Christ's resurrection turns sorrow into joy. The Lord, and I love this. I love this. I read this this week. This is actually, if you want to know, this is from Matthew Henry. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, nearer than they are aware. Isn't that wonderful? You know, we, those of us who seek Christ, even though we may not see him, we may be assured that he's not far off. And as she's talking to the angels, where is Christ? Right behind her. Which... That shows us Christ is often nearest people. We're not even aware of it. But she turns and she thinks that she sees the gardener. And so she speaks to him like he's the gardener. And look at how Jesus responds to her in verse number 15. It's a word of correction. It's a gentle word of correction. It's tender and kind, but it's, it's correction. Nevertheless, she says, he says this, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? What's the purpose of the tears here, Mary? If it's me you're looking for, why in the world are you looking in my old tomb as if you thought I would linger there a second longer than necessary? No, Mary, the work is done. Death is dead. I have risen. Why are you weeping now, Mary? And so it's a, it's a word of correction. Why are you weeping? And how does, how does Mary respond? Mary responds, still thinking that he's the gardener, and asks for the body. So Jesus spoke one word, Mary. Mary. Christ's way of making himself known to his people is by his word applied to their souls, speaking to them in particular. So he says, Mary. When I was thinking about that this week, do you know what I thought about? I thought about John chapter number 10. My sheep hear my voice. And they know my voice and they follow me. And my sheep know my voice and I know, call them by what? By name. And he called Mary by name. 
and she knew his voice. The apostle Paul, I'm sorry, when Saul was on the road to Damascus, um, God called him by name and he heard him. In Galatians 1.16, he said this, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles. And if you're here and you're in Christ, God called you by name. Amen? Oh, what a wonderful truth that is. And she responded joyfully in verse number 16. She turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which, which means teacher. And actually, if you want to know the truth, Rabbi means teacher. Rabbani is an intensive form that means master teacher. Master teacher. In other words, he, she should do anything that he asks her to do. Anything he tells her to do, he ought to do, or she ought to do. And so somebody who is in Jesus Christ will have pleasure in speaking about his authority over them. He's our master teacher. He's our rabbi. And so the resurrection changes everything about our lives, including our level of joy, doesn't it? The Christian is one whose joy is found in their hope of the resurrection. They, they have hope in seeing Christ face to face. They have hope in hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. They have hope in seeing all things made new. The joy of knowing that nothing in this life can take it away. Joy in knowing no matter what calamity or what political misfortune strikes our nation, we have a better and more permanent kingdom to look forward to. There are so many promises that we can apprehend by faith that brings us lasting joy. And so knowing the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, and trusting in the Christ of the resurrection turns sorrow into joy, doesn't it? But it also does something else. The resurrection gives us a commission. Apparently, Mary, and this is a fascinating passage that, that a lot of preachers just skip over, okay, this part of it. But uh, when she suddenly sees who he does, or who he is, she does what I suspect a lot of us would do. She reaches out and takes a hold of him in her joy. Now, it could be his feet, or it could have been just grabbed him around, hugged his waist, or or whatever it was, but uh, she grabbed him. And, and Jesus understands, though, that behind this is more than simply, it's not just a touch of affection and gratitude. There's something else in Mary's heart. And that something else is a desire to hold on to him in a manner of speaking, you could say, to hold him down. I'm never going to let you out of my sight again. You're here to stay. And that's something of what's going on in Mary's heart at this point. And it's understandable. Think about it. She thought that she lost him. And now here he is. And so she's clutching him possessively. She doesn't understand that something else must take place next. That Jesus is not here to stay. He must ascend to the right hand of the Father and there to take his place as King of kings and Lord of lords and pour out his spirit on the church. Amen? 
pour out his spirit on the church and that the church may be equipped to take the good news that he lives to the ends of the earth. And so he says to her, what does he say? He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now the issue is not that he can't be touched. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding here. Well, you can't touch him because he hasn't ascended to the Father. That's not the issue. Because if you remember his words to Thomas, you know, when he appears to the disciples in the upper room, what does he tell Thomas? Put your finger in the nail marks on, hand, uh, on your hands and put your hand into the wound in my side. That's kind of gross, isn't it? But, um, but put, put, your, put your hand in there where the Roman spear had punctured his heart. He rose in the same body in which he suffered. He is physically risen. And so the issue is not physicality. The issue is that he can't stay and it's for her good. And it's better for the disciples and it's better for us that he ascends and that he has ascended because now we have his spirit. And Jesus, by the way, calls that spirit another comforter. And that word another is a word that means another of the same kind. So it's as if when we say Jesus lives in our hearts, what do we mean? We have the Holy Spirit in us. He's the another comforter of the same kind. That's how Jesus lives in our hearts. And that's Jesus' point. Instead of Mary clinging to him, she says, no, Mary, I have a job for you. And so he gives her a commission. And he sends her back to the disciples with good news. Not that just Jesus has risen, but why he is risen. And that is, um, and that is to ascend. And she has a message that the cross and the empty tomb and the soon ascended dominion over all things, that's going to give us something. And I'll tell you something, we have a commission as well. We have a commission to tell the world that our Christ is no longer in the grave, that his resurrection provides power over death, and therefore no one has to die or stay spiritually dead. Amen? We literally have the greatest news of all time. We're commissioned by our king to tell the world we have the greatest news in the whole world. Death does not have to keep you. You know, death keeps a person. A person who is without Christ when they die is eternally alive in death. They are eternally alive, separated from the Father. That's the death. But they're alive, very much alive in the lake of fire and in, in Hades, hell. And we have the greatest news there is. There's one more thing. I love this. I really thought a lot about this this week as I was, as I was um, preparing for today. The resurrection also accomplishes our adoption. Look at the message. It's an oddly phrased message that she is to proclaim. If you think about it, why does he not say to her, Hey, Mary, go back to my brothers and tell him I am ascended to the Father. And that's easy enough to say, isn't it? Look at the language of verse number 17. I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Why this peculiar emphasis on the fatherhood of God? 
answer is simply because uh, the, the great benefit to us, the greatest benefit that comes to us from the sufferings and the exaltation of our Savior is our adoption into the family of God. Isn't it? We're a child. Remember the old hymn, I'm a child of the king? I'm a child of the king. You are my brothers, Jesus says. And my father is now your father. You come to belong to the family because I died and rose and ascend to reign, and you're welcome into my family. You know, there's, there's a vast difference between the, the respective foundations of the relation to God the Father. God is Christ's Father by eternal generation. And ours is by a gracious adoption. And yet even this allows us to call him, even as Christ did, Abba Father. We're adopted. That's our adopted family. what's amazing about that is this that Christ has now ascended and he's an advocate with our father with his father and therefore we can hope and we have hope and we know it's true that he's also the advocate for us to the father and therefore have joy because we're in the family of God he lives that you might have a place in the family and that's that's actually what Easter is quite literally about for many of you here today isn't it you're here with friends and family you've traveled some distance perhaps to be with your family Easter by tradition for many of us is about family please understand it's about family in more ways than you may recognize when you made your plans for Sunday lunch today, this Easter. There's an invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself for you to come home, to turn to him in faith, the faith that opens eyes and sees the Lord and trusts him to be our rescuer and our king. And the rescue is from none other than eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. That's the rescue, the greatest rescue of all time. And he invites you, and there's an invitation to trust him. And when you do, you become part of the family. First John chapter 1, verse number 13 says, To as many as received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. That's the invitation for every one of us today. And in his first letter, John will write, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. There's no greater privilege than that wayward, hell-deserving sinners like me be called a child of God, an heir 
of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And that is the invitation extended now to you as Jesus calls your name in the gospel and bids you to come to him. And he's saying to, to you, come home. Come home to your true family. Come home. You will become my brother. You will become my dear sister. And my father will be your father forever. I was just a bit emotional singing today, thinking that God, for whatever reason, desired to save a, a dirt clod like me and clean me up and call me his son. I'm looking at a lot of other people in the same situation, right? Isn't that amazing? Yes. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Though my heart grows weary. Right? He lives. He lives. My Jesus lives. My Savior lives today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the risen King. Oh, we are so undeserving of salvation. How, how can you send your Son to be a substitute for a sinner like me? I have no idea, except that it's a love that we can't even begin to comprehend. And we thank you for it. And I thank you, Lord, that because Jesus has risen, we no longer have to be in the realm of sorrow, but rather we can be joyful. Because Jesus is resurrected and lives, we have a commission. Because Jesus is resurrected, we have an adoption. Lord, I pray that we will meditate on these truths and that by meditation, it will make us more holy and desire to be more like our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.